Tonight's talk is going to be about um, meditating in the present moment. And basically the question is, why does Buddhist meditation focus on the present moment? And it's not because the present moment is a wonderful moment. And it's not because it's the only place you could focus. You can focus on other things. It's because of the way the Buddha taught karma, his principle of action. There's action going on in the present moment. And the way he taught karma specifically is related to what we're doing to cause ourselves suffering and what we can do to stop. So it's, there's something we've got to do in the present moment. That's where we're focusing here. Um, when he classified his teachings, he called himself a gamma wadin, which literally means someone who teaches karma. Um, it's interesting that of all the things he could have used to classify his teaching, that's what he focused on. Which means, of course, there were other teachers back in his time who did not teach karma. This is one of the big misunderstandings we have, which is that the Buddha somehow simply picked up his teachings on karma from his environment without thinking, and happened to tack him on to the Dharma. There were actually people who said that either you don't really act, the action is an illusion, or you act, but it has no, no results. Um, and, he, and being a karma wadden, he was a gamma wadden, he was basically saying, yes, we do act, and our actions do have results. But he also wanted to distinguish his teaching from other Gamma Wadden teachings at the time. And this is where it gets relevant to the present moment. There was another group that was called the Nigantas, who taught that, yes, what you experience now is the result of your past actions, but that's it. It's basically a kind of determinism. What you're going to experience right now is something you cannot change. And also that in the question of which is more important, actions of the mind or actions of the body, they said your physical actions are important. It's by acting that you create suffering physically. Your mental actions don't matter for them, it's your physical actions that matter. And we tend to think of the Buddha, you know, as probably as speaking sweetness and light, but there are times when he could get really, really um, come down hard on the Nagantas. Um, the Nagantas would had this practice of torturing themselves as a way of burning off their old karma, saying that you know, the pain that they were feeling and the torture was the result of their old karma being burned off. And he said, have you ever noticed that when you don't torture yourself, there's no pain? <laughs> and of course, you know, as whether the mind or the body is more important, can the body do anything on its own without the mind telling it to move? And with the, mind, the body without a mind is not going to do anything. So his point is basically that your present moment is not just the result of your past actions, it's your, and it's your mental actions that are important right now. Um, in fact, it's what you are doing right now to shape the potentials that come in from the past. That's going to make the difference between whether you suffer or don't suffer, which is why you want to look carefully at what you're doing right now. Because um, if, you, you know, if what you're, your suffering was caused by something you did in the past, there would be that old thing, do I deserve to suffer? Well, yeah, you did something really bad in a past lifetime that you don't know about. So yes, you deserve to suffer. If that were the case, when the Buddha was teaching people how to stop suffering, first he would ask them, did you do anything to deserve to suffer? And if they said, yes, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Now, his teaching is for everybody, whether we quote unquote deserve to suffer or not. In fact, he never uses the word people deserving to suffer, simply that there are potentials that come in from the past and what we do right now with those potentials is going to make the difference between whether we suffer or not. One of the images he gives is of a, a, a big hunk of salt. He says, if you take this hunk of salt and you put it in a small cup of water, 
you can't drink the water because there's so much salt and so little water. But if you were to take that same hunk of salt and put it into a clean river, you could still drink the water because there's so much more water. He says in the same way, a mind that is narrow-minded, that has not gained training in how to not be overcome by pleasure or pain, is like the small cup of water. Bad karma comes in from the past, you're going to suffer. But if you make your mind more expansive, and he was talking about developing universal goodwill, universal compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, and train your mind how not to suffer from pain, and not, not allow pain to overcome your mind, not allow pleasure to overcome your mind, then that's like the expansive river of water. Bad karma can come in from the past, but you don't suffer. Your mind is trained. So this is why we meditate, is to learn how to train that mind so it can be expansive and so not be overcome by pleasure and not be overcome by pain. And this is one of the reasons also why the present moment is not the goal. We're not here just to get into the present moment. A couple of months back I was teaching in California and this guy came into the group. It was a group I teach regularly and someone I'd never seen before. He said, I've been reading up on Buddhism. I've got a couple questions for you. Um, he said, now let me first get it right. You guys are trying to get into the present moment and that's your goal, right? I said, no. <laughs> he said, okay, that's the end of the questions. Because <laughs> his comment was going to be, my dog is in the present moment. <laughs> Why should I be aspiring to a, you know, a, state of, a dog state of mind? Um, if, you were, if we're trying to get into the present moment or just say the present moment is okay or learn how to accept the present moment, that kind of thing, it would be a defeatist teaching. In other words, you, there's nothing you can do. You just have to put up with the present moment, learn to be okay, and sort of lower your sights. Um, but that's not the Buddha. The Buddha said his teaching is a teaching in victory, not a te teaching in defeatism. So the way he teaches karma, and I want to go into more detail about this, is basically designed to focus your attention on the power of your actions in the present moment, but also to focus on, on emphasis on the point that the present moment is always under construction. You're taking in potentials from the past, and you're going to be doing something with them. That's why we experience the present moment. If it were not for your present karma, there would be no present moment. You'd be outside of space and time. And that gives the idea of, okay, we are trying to get outside of space and time, but we go through the present. So that's what that's we're here for. Not just to stay here, but to see there's an opening that takes us out. So this, his teaching on karma teaches us why we go to the present moment, what we can do there, what we can expect to find, and what potentials there are for finding true freedom getting beyond the present moment. That's what the, t the teachings are all about. Because when the Buddha talks about focusing on the present moment, it's always in the context of death contemplation. That's something that needs to be underlined. It's only when he... there's two main places in the, in the Pali Canon where he says you've got to stay in the present moment. One is where he's saying, do your duty today because who knows, tomorrow death may come. You don't go after the past, don't go after the future, but focus on seeing clearly what's happening in the present and do your duty. There's another one where he's talking to the monks and he says, um, how often do you think about death? And there's one monk who says, I think about death once a day. Now the monk says, I think about it twice a day. <laughs> and it goes up to finally, one monk says, I think about it every time I breathe in and breathe out. <laughs> Another one says, while I'm eating, I think, may I live long enough to swallow this food? I can do something good with the practice. Okay. And the Buddha says, okay, you last two guys, you're the ones who are heedful. 
Everybody else is heedless. So you've got to be focused right on the present moment because you realize, okay, there's, what I'm doing right now is important. I've got to focus on doing it well. There's another one where he says, you know, when you see the sunrise in the morning, remind yourself that this could be your last sunrise. Are you ready to go? And show of hands. <laughs> okay. So there's work to be done. Okay. Focus on doing it now because you don't know how much longer you've got. The same when the sun sets. This could be your last, last sunset. Are you ready to go? Well, what needs to be done in your mind so that you would be ready to go? Focus on that. Notice, death contemplation is not to make you depressed, it's to make, make you realize what I do right now is important, so I better pay careful attention to what I'm doing. Now he talks about doing your duty, and this falls under the Four Noble Truths. In other words, we're, the duty we have is if you really want to put an end to suffering, there's something to be done right now, so this is what you've got to do. You've got Four Noble Truths. There's, um, there's suffering or stress, dukkha. And the duty there is to comprehend it. Then there is the cause of suffering, which is craving. And the duty there is to abandon it, to let it go. There is the cessation of suffering, which is the duty there is to realize it. And you do that by developing the path. That's the duty with regard to the fourth noble truth, which is the way to the cessation of suffering. So these are the duties that the Buddha lays out. There's something to be done. He always said that, Every good teacher should give you an idea of how to decide what should, you should be done and should not be done. That was his duty as a teacher, so this is what he's laying it out. You look to try to recognize what is the suffering, try to comprehend it. What is the cause, you try to abandon it. Now right there is, goes against a lot of what we try to do. We like to abandon suffering, right? But he says, no, you can't abandon suffering, you've got to comprehend it. It's like going into your house. The house is full of smoke and you try to put out the smoke. If you just keep on putting out the smoke, you're never going to come to an end of it because the, the fire is still burning. You've got to find the fire. You put out the fire, then the smoke will end on its own. So it's the craving that you've got to abandon. And then similarly with the cessation, that's something you realize, and you realize that by developing the qualities of the path. So there's something to be done. You try to develop right view, right concentration, and all the factors in between. So these are the duties that the Buddha lays out. And in the course of following these duties, he said, you're going to learn some things about your mind. It's interesting, when the Buddha was talking to people, he very rarely talked about saying, well, this is what reality is like. And then, based on what reality is like, then we're going to tell you what to do. He says, this is what you're going to do, and in the course of doing this, you're going to find out some things about reality. It's an interesting switch, but it's, it's a very important one. And in the course of looking into how you're creating suffering in the present moment, he says you're going to find that even before you have contact at the senses, your mind is already going out, looking for something, usually looking for trouble. <laughs> I mean, this is why we have online shopping. You know? <laughs> what would I like to want? You know? <laughs> it's very rare that we go out and say, I really need X. And I'm going to find X, I'm going to get off, uh, offline as fast as possible. You, know? you say, what, what, what would I like? To? There was a story I read recently in Thailand. It was about a, about a guy who is given a talisman that's going to give him three wishes. And he talks about how, it, how suddenly he's overcome with joy that he's going to be allowed to want something he never even thought of wanting before. <laughs> it's also why we have hate radio. You want to get worked up about something? 
You can turn on either Rush Limbaugh or Rachel Meadow, I mean, depending on your taste and hate. Or you can pick up the nation, you know, what do you want to get worked up about? It's, we're out there looking for something. And the Buddha calls us, in, in terms of dependent core rising, he says, even before you have your contact at the senses, and it's interesting, contact at the senses is basically your past karma coming in. But before that, you've got your present karma, your intentions going out. You're fabricating something, you're putting something together. As the Buddha said, you've probably heard the teachings on the five aggregates. And the word aggregate is kind of unfortunate because it sounds like gravel. Um, <laughs> it's, it's basically these are five activities that the mind engages in. And we cling to these activities and that's why we suffer. But he says, even before we have these activities, there's going to be a fabrication for the sake of having the activities. That's our present karma. It's always this, for the sake of something. We're doing some, we're going, engaging in the present moment because we want something out of it. Now, we may not be clear about what we want, it may be kind of vague and unknown. Um, one of the monks at the monastery one day came to me and was kind of embarrassed. He said, you know, he, he'd always liked the job of helping to go and pick up other monks who might be coming in at the airport. And he realized it was because he liked to look at all the pretty women. <laughs> <laughs> in the airport. And so finally he realized, okay, this is stupid. This is not my, this is what, not, you know, as my teacher used to say, when, you, when a monk starts feeling thoughts of lust, he should rub his head to remind himself, yeah, I'm a monk right now. Um, and so he said, okay, this time I'm going to go look for the signs of aging. And so he we went to the airport, and sure enough, there were old people everywhere, which he had never seen. Because he had been creating, he'd been wanting to create the perception of beauty and look for how can my perception of beauty be actually confirmed out there. But you look for, okay, well, maybe, maybe there are other things to perceive out there. There's this part of the mind that we're, we have a potential for how we experience the body. We have a potential for how we're going to experience feelings. And it's not just one potential. We've got lots of potentials coming in from the past. Potentials for how we might perceive things, the labels we apply to things, the way we structure our, our view of reality, the way we put our thoughts together, it's fabrication, and our awareness of these things. These, there's always a for the sake of something in there. So we're constantly in the process of creating the present moment, which is why when you're in the present moment, it's not stepping out of time. Because we're creating not only now, but we're creating the influences that are going to go on into the future. We're creating time by engaging in the present moment. So by being in the present moment, you're not just stepping out of time. You're actually engaged in creating more time. By focusing on the present moment, you're paying more attention to what you're doing, but it doesn't change the quality of the fact that you're very much in time. And as the Buddha said, the things that we create in time are inconstant, stressful, not self. The image he gives is a burning house. So no, we're not only in a construction site, we're building burning houses. So we're not going to be just hanging out here. What he says is you want to look at what you're doing and, and see how you're creating this problem. And then he says, okay, now your duty with regard to the path is to come in and try to develop qualities that will counteract that. And just as your ordinary engagement with your senses is proactive, so the path is proactive as well. I mean, you actually try to develop a way of looking at reality that will not cause suffering. So you're actually changing your views about things. And it's important to realize, when the Buddha is talking about right view, it is just that, a view, it's not knowledge. He says, accept the fact that you are 
actively creating things and your actions do have consequences. If you can't accept that as a working hypothesis, the path is not going to work. And then based on that, you try to develop the appropriate intentions and the appropriate actions. And in meditation, again, there's a very proactive side. You try to give rise to skillful qualities. When they're there, you try to maintain them and develop them. You try to abandon unskillful qualities, or if, and if they haven't come up, you try to prevent them. So there's work to be done. That's right effort. Now, right mindfulness builds on that. And there's, a, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. We're often taught that right mindfulness is basically just accepting what's coming up or being non-reactive to what's coming up. The Buddha never said that. When he defined mindfulness, it's a faculty of the memory. And what you're remembering is what's skillful, what's not skillful. Learn how to recognize these things when they come up. This is something we often, we often forget. You know, we know that sensual desire is a hindrance, ill will is a hindrance. But how many times when sensual desire comes up do you actually tell yourself, hey, this is a hindrance? <laughs> and hindrances should be abandoned. Or when ill will comes up, oh, this is a hindrance. We often forget that. And so the duty of mindfulness is to remind ourselves, okay, this is something that if you follow through with it, it's going to create trouble. And so it's basically telling you, okay, as long as you're fa fashioning the present moment, try to remember how it's done skillfully. That's what mindfulness is about. When something good comes up, you try to nourish it. In other words, concentration, a moment of concentration comes in the mind, and it comes and it passes away. You don't just say, oh, that's what that's insight into impermanence. No, saying, wait a minute, no, I've got to go back and try to retrieve it, get it back, make it, allow it to develop. There's work to be done. That's, that's the work of right mindfulness. And right mindfulness, when it's done properly, will lead the mind into concentration, where you settle down and you really are solidly with, say, either the breath, your body, thoughts of goodwill, whatever your topic of concentration is. When mindfulness is really, really good, you keep remembering, stay with this, stay with this, stay with this. And the mind can then develop a sense of well-being in there. Now, this, this right concentration is something that you, act, act, you actively develop it through mindfulness, through right effort, through all the, developing all the factors of the path. And even some of the factors of the path that we tend to think are more passive and kind of accepting and laying, but laid back actually have their passive and, I wouldn't say aggressive side, but their passive and proactive side. For instance, um, equanimity. And the Buddha himself said equanimity, if, it's, if you do nothing but equanimity, you're not going to get anywhere. You just say, okay, whatever comes up, I'm okay. That, that doesn't accomplish anything. He says there's skillful equanimity and unskillful. And he never teaches equanimity on its own. It's always part of a larger set. For example, with the, the four Brahma-Viharas, the, the sublime attitudes, okay, you've got goodwill, which is a wish for true happiness for yourself and others. Compassion, which is when you see somebody suffering or doing the causes, acting in a way that's going to cause suffering, you feel compassion for them. May this person stop doing that, or may they you know, be, get past their suffering. Empathetic joy is for when you see someone who is either creating the causes for happiness or enjoying their happiness from their past actions or present actions. In that case, you say, may this person continue in those actions, and may that person continue to, to, to reap their rewards. And then you have equanimity. And equanimity is there for cases where okay, you see somebody's doing something unskillful and they can't stop, or you can't stop them. 
That's when you have to say, okay, this is a case where for the time being at least I have to be equanimous. So we're having, this is, this is basically the equanimity of a doctor. The doctor has to have goodwill for his, his or her patient, has to have compassion, empathetic joy for the patient when the patient recovers. But there are times when the doctor realizes, I know I can't cure this patient, or there's some things I cannot change. And the doctor does that not to just abandon the patient, but to focus more on, okay, the things I can't change, I'm not going to focus there, I'm going to focus back on the things that I can. So equanimity is not just something you just do on its own and say to hell with the world. You're basically saying, okay, there are things I can't change, I have to accept that so that I can focus on the things I can. So that's, that's how the Buddha teaches equanimity. So even though it may seem to be passive and accepting, it's not always passing and always accepting. You have to learn how to be selective. The same goes with patience and endurance. There are certain things the Buddha says you have to be patient and enduring. Number one, physical pain. You have to learn how to stick with it and not suffer from it. No, no, notice, it's not just sticking with it and enduring it. He says, well, learn what you're doing to create suffering out of your pain, and then focus on changing that. So you're, you're, putting up with, you're learning how to endure physical pain, and the other is learning how to endure harsh words. When people say hurtful things, the Buddha says, okay, they may say hurtful things, but who is harming yourself? You're the one who's harming yourself by taking them in. It's like they hand you an arrow and you stick yourself with it. Okay. So there's, you think in those ways, or a John Lee's image I think is really good. It's like somebody spits something out on the ground. You pick it up, you eat it, <laughs> and then you get sick, <laughs> and then you blame them. <laughs> And the Buddha says the way you deal with this is there are two ways. One is that you try to depersonalize it. He says, think about the kinds of speech there are in the world. There is kind speech and unkind speech. There is true speech and untrue speech. Well-meaning speech and ill-meaning speech. And so if someone is te you know, treating you with untrue, unkind, ill-meaning speech, it's nothing out of the ordinary. Think about that. So the next time someone says something outrageous, you say, well, it's not, not all that outrageous. I've heard things that are more outrageous than this. <laughs> I can take this. <laughs> the other way the Buddha has you treat this is he says, you know, someone says something really nasty. You tell yourself, an unpleasant sound has made contact at the ear. <laughs> and you leave it there. <laughs> so these are the kinds of things that you have patience and endurance with. Okay. Now, as for... Unskillful thoughts in your mind, he says, do not be patient with them. Do not endure them. Do what you can just not to let yourself be overcome by them. Now, it may be that the, the thought is there and it's, it's, it's got kind of a life of its own, but you can tell yourself, I have to, I can, I have, I'm able to step out of this thought. I don't have to be in this thought. I don't have to follow through with it. Separate yourself from the thought. In other words, you don't just sit there and endure it. You try to figure it out. Okay, where is this coming from? Why is this having a hold on my mind? You try to figure it out. And that way you're not just enduring it, you're actually actively fighting against it until finally you can come out. And John Mahabua says, you know, if you, if you don't fight it at all, how can you say you lost? <laughs> at least, there, you know, if you fight it and you lose, okay, there's certain honor in at least the fact that you fought it. But if you just give in and say, okay, well, I guess I can't help myself, that you, it's worse than losing. So if you can think in those terms, then it gives you an, an incentive, as the Buddha says, to not simply endure unskillful thoughts. 
another teaching that we tend to think is more passive, which is the teaching on contentment. Here again, the Buddha teaches there are areas where you are content and areas where you have to be discontent. Contentment largely has to do with the physical surroundings that you have. If they're good enough for you to practice, learn to be content. In terms of your food, clothing, shelter. If it's good enough to practice, it's good enough. And that way you're not totally, you know, constantly involved in trying to make things better than they have to be. And wasting a lot of time and a lot of energy on you, that could be better spent on looking at your mind. Because that's the area of the Buddha says where you have to be discontent. He one time said that the, the secret to his awakening was that he never allowed himself to be content with the level of skill he had developed. If there was more to be done, he wanted to do it. He didn't just say, well, this is good enough for tonight, that's an out, I'm out. There's something more I can do. Is there something better I can do? And yet you realize, why, why are you practicing? It's because there's a certain discontent. If you were totally happy with your life, why would you be here? <laughs> it's because you realize something's wrong, and maybe I can do something about it by the way I train my mind. So discontent is not a bad thing, as long as you focus it in the right direction. Focus it on what's going on with my mind, what can I improve? So even these teachings that are tend to be, you know, seen as relatively passive, you know, mindfulness, equanimity, patience, contentment, they have their active side. They're, they're supposed to be part of an active process, like with patience. The Buddha's image for patience is almost always a soldier or an animal, a horse or an elephant in battle. In other words, you're not just going to give up, but you have to endure some pain, you have to endure setbacks, but you don't just say, well, I'll learn to be okay with the setbacks. You say, okay, I've got to endure this right now, but I'm going to figure out how am I going to get past it. There was a school in, um, I think it was in San Francisco, I'm not sure, where they taught brain surgery. And they realized, okay, everybody who applies to the program is going to get straight A's. So you can't rely on their grades to figure out who's going to be the good surgeon and who's not going to be the good surgeon. So they had to figure out questions you would ask in an interview to ferret out, okay, who, who had the potential and who didn't. And after trial and error, they found out two questions that they said were, had a high correlation. One was, can you tell us a mistake you made recently? And the students said, oh, and no, I never make mistakes. <laughs> out. Um, okay, for the people who admitted that they had made a mistake recently, the next question was, how would you not repeat that mistake? And whether they came up with a good idea or a bad idea, the fact that they simply thought about not repeating the mistake, that was it. That, was, that would indicate that there were people they wanted in. And this is the kind of attitude you've got to have in the practice. We're working on a skill, and you want to look at what you're doing, and you say, okay, where is it that I can be, it could be improved? At John Lee's images of uh, weaving a basket, the teacher shows you, this is how you weave, and you basically make your first basket, it looks pretty bad. But then you don't give up right then, say, I have, no, I have no potential. You say, well, what can I do the next time around to make it better? Is it too short? Is it too fat? Is the weave uneven? What can I do to make it better? And then you try weaving another basket, and then you look at that one. And you learn from the second basket. In other words, you learn from what you've done. And that's the attitude of sort of discontent. I, I want to make it better. I want to make it better. Now, this also, and it also means learning how to pace yourself, but at least I'm having this attitude that there is a skill to be worked on here. I want to, I want to improve this. This is how your practice actually gets results in the present moment. 
Now, this attitude of discontent then eventually takes you even further and further. You know, we talk about getting the mind into right concentration, but you don't stay there. It's interesting to note that the word for uh, right concentration in Pali, jhana, is related to a verb, jayati, which also is the same verb for a flame that burns with a steady, a fire that burns with a steady flame, like the, the flame of an oil lamp. They have different verbs for burning fires in Pali, and the one for the oil lamp is jayati, which is related to jhana. And so basically what you're doing, we talked earlier about how the Buddha said your house is on fire. When you get the mind in right concentration, you basically turn the fire down until it's steady. And it's steady enough so then you can read by it. You can read your mind, you can see. We talked about those five aggregates. When the mind is in the right concentration, that's the perfect place to see the aggregates. Because you've got, say you're focused on the, on the breath, okay, you've got the body, which is the first aggregate, and you've got the feeling of pleasure that you're trying to maintain. You've got your perception of the breath that keeps you there. For instance, if you perceive the breath as a kind of a whole body process, you hold that image in mind. And then you've got fabrication where you're talking to yourself. How is it going? Is it, what could be adjusted? How could we improve it? Once there's a sense of well-being, how can we spread it through the body? And then you, there's your awareness of all these things. Now, these are the five aggregates that you, we cling to. Now they're sort of the, the fire has been turned down a little bit so we can see them clearly. But then we begin to see, okay, even this is on fire. And it's when you see that, that this state of right concentration has these aggregates that are stressful, inconstant, not self. That's when you let them go. And it's when you let them go, this, then the mind goes to something that's outside of the aggregates, outside of this construction that we've been doing in, in the present moment. And having had that experience, you come back and it's cut through some of the fetters that keep the mind bound to suffering. In other words, you no longer identify with the aggregates because you realize there's something that can be experienced that has nothing to do with the aggregates at all. You no longer have any doubts about what the Buddha taught. There really is an end to suffering. You've seen it. And then you realize, okay, you no longer have the idea that it's simply a matter of obeying instructions that's going to get you, you know, that, that's what clinging to precepts and practices is all about, or habits and practices is all about. In other words, the idea that, okay, if I do something the way I'm told, everything will come out. You have to use your ingenuity in order to see this, have this experience of how you step out. That means, okay, you, you can, however, you would still continue to hold by the precepts because you realize it's your lack of skill, your own harmful actions that you've harmed yourself, harmed other people that have prevented this experience where you step out of space and time. So you're, you're never going to consciously, you know, intentionally break the precepts. So these fetters of doubt, identification with the aggregates, and um, grasping at habits and practices, these are gone because you've been able to step out of, out of space and time. Now, stepping out of space and time may sound pretty esoteric right now, but the whole purpose of this is to point out that we're not here in the present moment just to accept the present moment or to perform a self-lobotomy and say, I'm okay in the present moment, it's a wonderful moment. And it's also to realize that, okay, we don't just simply have to accept the way things are. We're not powerless. There are things that can be changed. And the Buddha is pointing to where the where the real problem is. The problem is in the mind that's going out and trying to feed off the present moment. This is why the, you know, the causes of suffering are inside, not outside. And this is not to deny that there are bad things outside, but what he's saying basically, things outside can be pretty bad, but we don't have to suffer from it. This is, again, 
the power that we have to not suffer even though the situations are bad. So this, the purpose of this is to find, point out, okay, we're here because there's work to be done if we want to put an end to suffering. And the Buddha points us directly to how the work should be done, where the opportunities are in the present moment that we can make, it, make a change for the better so that we're causing less suffering for ourselves, causing less suffering for the people around us. So when you hear the, the people say, okay, the Buddha teaches that the present moment is the result of past actions, you say, no, 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 no. The present moment comes from potentials from the past, and there are many potentials. But the, what we choose to focus on and how we choose to act it, that's going to make the difference of how we actually experience the present, whether we're going to suffer from it or not. So this is why we focus on the present moment. There's work to be done, good work to be done. And we have the power within us to make the difference between whether we are going to suffer or not suffer. So that's why we're here. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.